Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Exodus 2, 23 through 25. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue and slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is the word of God to us. God. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline. Uh, it's great to be with you. One of the questions that we get asked a lot as a church, probably the most common question we get asked about is uh, the way that we structure our services. So there's this thing called liturgy. And I, I grew up in church. I don't know if, if you did or not, but I grew up in church, but did not grow up in a church context that did uh, this liturgical element at all. There were not prayers that we would pray together uh, that were on the screen or times of confession or assurance. So that might be new to you. It was new to me years ago. And for us, that's not like a denominational thing. We don't do that because we're a part of a certain denomination, but really because if you think back to church history, that's something that the early church has done for hundreds and hundreds of years as a way of forming people into the way of Jesus. So here's how I describe it. Uh, throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, you are being storied all day long. You're being storied to love the world a certain way, to see things a certain way, to desire things, to have a vision of what America calls the good life. And Sunday is a moment where we come in and it's a sanctuary in the sense where we're getting restoried into the way of Jesus, where those disordered loves of our culture, those disordered loves of the world actually start to, to, start to give way and we're taught to value and love what Jesus loves, to desire his kingdom. So that's why we do the things that we're doing on Sundays. Like when we talk about giving, we're as the people of God saying, God, help us not love money, but help us love you and your people and help us be generous with money. When we stand in that confession and assurance, we're confessing our sin, not just so that we can do it once a week, but so that we can learn to do that as a rhythm throughout the week and then receive the, the pardon the assurance of what Jesus has done for us. When we pray for the world, that intercession moment, that's us praying, like not just in this moment, but teach us to be people who intercede and pray for our world throughout the week. So that's why we do what we do. And I just wanna say, if you have questions about our church or questions about the way that we're set up or why, why we do what we do or what we believe or any of that, none of that's off limits. If you're just trying to figure stuff out, we're really happy that you're here. And uh, we were new at one time and I didn't believe in Jesus at one time and now I do. So if, if you wanna wrestle and talk through that, we'd love to do that with you. Sound good? Okay, great. Uh, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be in the book of Exodus, primarily chapter one and chapter two. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and head there. If you're new to the Bible, it is super easy to find because it's the second book. So you've got Genesis and then Exodus. So really easy to find right there in the beginning. And I wanna take a second and pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for 
the reality of this day where we, we think about the peace that you've brought, peace between God and man. And we pray today that you would bring that, that reality and the truth of peace to bear in every single heart and mind in this room. There, there is nothing that I could say, there is nothing that I could do to convince anybody of this peace. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that as we sit under the authority of your word, that you would do something in our hearts to actually give us the grace of peace. So come and move, God. Meet us in all the ways that we need it. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Something really bizarre happened on December 24th around 10 p.m. in 1914. If you are into history, if you know history, then you know that for a few months now in 1914, there had been World War I raging And you had Germany and Great Britain and others, but you had Germany and Great Britain that were along the Western Front in the middle of, uh, for the first time, unique trench warfare. And at 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and then rolling all the way through the night into the early hours of Christmas Day, something bizarre happened. Things went completely silent. One of the last surviving veterans of the war describes the silence this way. He says, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty, and we all went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. All I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing and the cracking and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire, and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted, Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. Now, soon after, what happened was really strange because as the sun began to rise, you could hear Christmas carols coming from the German side. They were loudly singing Christmas carols. And then the the British side joined in. And so here you have these two opposing enemies singing Christmas carols to one another. And then to get even more bizarre, the Germans laid down their arms. And as the sun came up, they began to slowly venture out into no man's land And the British thought this was a joke, thought this was a trick until they realized they don't have any weapons. So they started venturing out into no man's land and they greeted together in the middle and had this bizarre time of peace. Another soldier recounts the event like this. Here we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. Here's some photos of this. They begin to exchange presents of cigarettes and pipe tobacco, plum puddings, alcohol. Uh, they, they exchanged souvenirs like helmets and buttons off of their jackets. Some of the soldiers gave other soldiers on the opposing side haircuts during this time. And they began to play friendly games. And they even took uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas, or sorry, candles rather, and set up trees around the trenches and put these candles on the trees and began to sing Christmas carols together. Maybe most bizarrely of all, they played a game of football together during this Christmas day. And this went on like that throughout the whole day. Pretty amazing, right? Except eventually the sun set, Christmas day came to a close and the war was back on as if nothing had ever happened. That same, one of the last surviving veterans, he says it this way. He says, the silence ended early and the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. And there's one way to look at that of like, oh, look at humanity. Like even the darkness of war can't keep the Christmas spirit down. But I don't think that's the right way to look at that story. 
It's like, look at this temporary faux peace that really won't last because let's get back with the war. And here's why I bring that story up, because I think that if I could inject truth serum in each one of us, that there would be more than a few of us, maybe a lot of us, that would say something like this. Yeah, that peace that Jesus supposedly came to bring, it feels a bit like a sham. It feels shallow and sentimental. It feels short-lived. Jesus apparently came to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, but where is the peace? Because we live in a world that's marked by chaos and brokenness, and it doesn't feel like we have much peace. And you might even say it this way, like Christmas morning's gonna show up for all of us, and that morning we're gonna open up gifts and we're gonna exchange stockings and we're gonna eat good food and gather with friends and family. We're gonna have this time of what will feel like peace, but then humming in the background is gonna be the chaos of our lives, pain of what's going on in your family. Maybe a a member of a family or a loved one that's not gonna be around the table this year Or maybe it's the addiction that you're trying to lie to yourself and to others about, that it's not really there. Or maybe it's some other form of brokenness. Maybe it's anxiety and depression. All I know is that what's gonna feel like a moment of peace on Christmas Day will be like this temporary silencing of the war. And then as soon as the sun goes down and the next day comes back up, all of life will go back to the way it was. And we're just left wondering, where is the peace that Jesus came to bring? There's a, there's a famous uh, best-selling author and scholar who is also an agnostic named Bart Ehrman. You may have heard of him. And he was asked this question, what would it take for you to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is? And here's what Bart Ehrman said in response. If Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. Like I can't believe because he said he would bring peace but where is that peace? Now, often the way that we define peace, let's just define our terms for just a minute. The way that we define peace as a culture is really flimsy because often it's like, oh, peace is the absence of war. So if we don't have war, then we have peace. Or maybe in our kind of therapeutic culture today, peace is that internal emotional feeling that you're pursuing in therapy or counseling. Like if I could just be a peaceful presence and work out all the family dynamics that are at play in my life, then I would have peace. But, but the Bible describes peace in a very different way. It uses this Hebrew word shalom, which is not peace as we might think. It's not just simply the absence of war or an emotional feeling, but peace means this, this everything is as it was supposed to be, that everything is right and good in the world. Tim Keller defines it this way. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. So the question I want to wrestle with this morning is like, on this Advent day where we remember peace, is the peace that Jesus brought us a sham? Or is there something to it? And how do we understand the peace that Jesus brought to us? To really wrestle with those questions, what we need to do is go back to a story in the Old Testament and look at what I would probably assume is the most desperate group of people that we have record of in the Bible, the most desperate group of people, and look at their own longing for peace and what God did to meet them with his peace. So if you were with us last week, we looked at Eden and hope in Genesis chapters one, two, and three. And today what we're gonna do is fast forward in the biblical narrative and get to Exodus, this place of Egypt 
and our longing for peace. Now, I, I need to give you some background before we get to chapter one, uh, because most of us might only know a little bit about the story from like Disney movies or other pop culture references to the Exodus, but we don't really know how this whole thing unfolded and how the people got there. So here, here's the Cliff Notes version. There's a guy named Jacob who later became known as Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons who later became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. In a really strange, bizarre story, the 11th son, Joseph, finds himself in Egypt, a foreign land, with the rest of his family in another spot. And so here Joseph is in Egypt, and through a really strange set of circumstances, Joseph, Joseph becomes incredibly powerful in Egypt. He becomes the, basically the second highest ranking uh, political ruler in Egypt underneath Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's another way to describe the king of Egypt. And he's given tremendous uh, levels of honor and tremendous levels of access to Egypt. And a lot of things are going well, so much so that Pharaoh says to Joseph, hey, why don't you bring the rest of your family to Egypt? Because there's this raging famine in the known world at the time. And, and, and Egypt was like one of the only places that had food. And so Jacob and his sons and their sons and daughters and their families and their livestock migrate to Egypt to basically survive. And at the time, there's only around 70 of them. But then as time went on, Jacob dies. Then the sons die. Even Joseph dies. But the people of Israel multiply and they continue to have more babies. And it's like someone kicked over a, a a baby anthill with children in Egypt. And it's like all these Hebrew babies are coming out of the woodwork everywhere and they continue to grow both in power and in number. And about 400 years pass and now we parachute into the story. So with that background, the Exodus story begins. Look at it in verse eight of chapter one. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made all their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and in brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now skip down to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here's the first thing I want you to see, and that's Egypt as the absence of peace. Uh, imagine for just a minute being a person in Israel in this moment. Egypt was at one time a place of rescue for you. Egypt was at one time the place that we escaped to to get away from the famine. It was a place of hope. It was a place of redemption. But over time, the place of hope had actually became a place where there was no peace because of Pharaoh's greed and because of his sin. 
and his pride and his insecurity. He became fearful of the people of Israel and he began to oppress them. So instead of uh, Egypt being the place where you're, you're rescued from a famine, it became the place where now you are enslaved and afflicted and oppressed. Now try to put yourself into the story for just a minute and, and think about what life as a slave in this moment must have been like. Uh, their slavery in Egypt was not unlike some of the chattel slavery that Americans had in our own history, where we were taking people out of their homes in Africa and forcing them to work in the fields and mistreating them. Uh, when I was in Ghana a couple of years ago, I had uh, this, this chance to go walk and tour this site where it was like the last site that they would ship slaves to before they would be forcibly put on boats and then sent across to either the Netherlands or to the US or wherever. And it was haunting to walk through this castle, this fort that was at one time like a church monastery turned into a place where slaves were held. And and, and as we were getting the tour, they were just explaining the mistreatment that already started before they even got on this long journey to the US. And then not to mention working as a slave in the U.S. without pay, without dignity, without value, with cruel oppression. Like, think about that. That's a similar approach of what's happening here to the people of God in Egypt. Backbreaking manual labor, long, difficult hours, no pay, no upgrades in your economic status, no value or respect in the society. The fruit of all of your work doesn't go to you, it doesn't go to your kids, it doesn't go to people that you love, it goes to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Just imagine being a young, pregnant Hebrew woman in Egypt in a day and age without ultrasounds. You have no idea if the baby that you're carrying is a little boy or a little girl. So you get pregnant and there's like the the joy that comes with that, but then there's also the, the terror and the fear, like, what if it's a boy? And, and if it is a boy, how long will I get to hold my baby before he's ripped from my hands and thrown to be killed in the River Nile? Like, this is a horrible, horrible existence. Instead of Egypt being the place of rescue, it had, it had become something of oppression and affliction and really the absence of shalom. Something had gone very, very wrong. And, he, and that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, and that's Egypt as a microcosm for your life and for my life on planet Earth. Now, on one level, we read this story and it's difficult to relate because uh, unless you have, uh, unless you've uh, been a part of like sex trafficking, which is modern day slavery, or been in a really intense, controlling, uh, physically abusive relationship, or been forced to uh, maybe have, have an abortion, which all are things that happen in our society and in our world, those people can read the story and immediately relate. But many of us, maybe most of us, can't relate to the story on that level. We read it and it's like, yeah, we, we've never had to spend backbreaking manual labor for the rest of our lives without pay. Like that's not our story. We've never been under that level of cruel oppression And that level of trauma and PTSD of having your babies ripped out of your hands and thrown into a river. So there's a lot about the story that you and I cannot relate to, thank the Lord, that doesn't immediately kind of conjure up images of, oh, this story is my story. But 
if you actually look at the story beneath the surface and realize what's really happening here, what you're going to find is that according to the biblical authors, time and time and time again, they reference Egypt and they reference the Exodus as the primary human narrative again and again and again, where we were once in a world where everything was as it was supposed to be, and then something went wrong because of sin, and now it's a place of affliction and oppression and brokenness, and yes, even slavery, but this time our, our, our pharaohs are no longer this king named Pharaoh, and our slavery is not physical chains in Egypt, but we have three ancient enemies that function as the ultimate pharaohs of our lives, and our slavery is a spiritual type of slavery. Our three enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil. The, the world, if you're like, what is that? We're not talking about the planet as much as we're talking about the collaborative networks and structures and philosophies of our culture that stand in opposition to Jesus. This is both an enemy to God and an enemy of the people of God. It's, it's creating things that are broken. It's, it's, it's facilitating things that go against the heart of God. It's, it's, it's saying yes to things that break the heart of God, and it's baptizing things that cause God to weep. This is the world that you and I live in, filled with, because of sin, sin, brokenness, and dysfunction. Our second enemy, the devil and powers of darkness. These are real, powerful spiritual beings. They're not omnipotent. They're not all powerful, but they are real and they are powerful. Don't think of uh, Satan or the devil as like this little man in a red, you know, onesie walking around with a big pitchfork and kind of yelling on people's shoulders. Uh, Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this world again and again and again. What he means is he created the world to be his reign and his rule. But as we looked at last week, because of sin, we've actually traded God's authority for our own authority. And by doing so, this world has become enemy-occupied territory that now we live inside of a world that's run and, and controlled and governed by the devil and the powers of darkness, the ruler of this world. And then finally, our last enemy is the flesh. And I don't mean that part of you that is like more prevalent now because of Thanksgiving and all the feasting that you've been doing. I mean that part of you internally that is probably our most sinister enemy of all because all the other enemies are external, but this is the enemy that lowers the drawbridge from within and invites the enemy to walk on in. This is the, this is the enemy that has your disordered loves and desires and broken dysfunctions and says yes to them. That part of you that is, is feeling the weight of temptation and pull towards sin. And here's what's so crazy about our flesh and the way that we give, give into it again and again. Jesus said this in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? Is a slave to sin. Friends, here's our problem. Our problem is not that we live in Egypt with Pharaoh who kind of governs and controls us and makes our lives miserable. Our problem is our sin. And the reason that we do bad things is because at our core, something has gone wrong in our heart. And we live in this world where the ruler of this world is opposed to Jesus and systems and structures of this world are opposed to Jesus and disordered desires in our own heart are opposed to Jesus. And this unleashes a level of affliction and chaos and brokenness. And let's just say it this way, a lack of peace, a lack of shalom on our world that leaves us crying out for help. Uh, the, the people of God 
in Egypt do a similar thing. Fast forward to chapter two, verse 23. Notice where this lack of peace leads the people of God. During those days, the king of Egypt died. You think things would get better, but they don't. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. So friends, Egypt happened, but Egypt is also a microcosm of the world that you and I live in where things that have at one time been good, but something has gone wrong and now we find ourselves as slaves crying out for rescue. So modern day Egypt for you or for me is anything that causes you groaning and longing and crying out to God for deliverance. It's anything that you can point to in your life and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's that addiction that you cannot seem to control. It's that tragedy that happened in your family. It's the the, the death of a loved one that was premature and never should have happened. It's something happening in our world that you go, this is not the way it should be. That is Egypt and it causes you and I to cry out for help and for deliverance and for peace. So two questions I want you to ponder as we kind of move on and wrap this up. What is it in your life that's causing you to groan and cry out for help? I I don't know your story. I don't know what you're bringing into the room, but what is it in your own life that you look at and go, man, this is an area where I don't experience the peace of God. I don't experience shalom. It's broken and I need it to be fixed. And then the second question, maybe the more haunting question, is what is God's response to that thing in you? Again, I think if we were honest, which is so hard for, especially if you're a churched person, really hard to be honest. We've mastered the game of walking in and painting a smile on our face and, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Everything's fine. Don't ask too many questions. We've really mastered that. What is God's response? I think a lot of us would go, I think he's just silent. I think he's like non-existent with my pain. I think for whatever reason, he tends to show up for other people, but he wants nothing to do with me. What is God's response? Well, here's why I wanted to go to the story because there's something that happens as these people are groaning under oppression. There's something that happens as they're longing for deliverance, as they're feeling the pain of Egypt, crying out for peace, that God does something here that is just in his nature to do with all of his people. Look at Exodus chapter two, the rest of verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And look at this. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. The third and last thing I want you to see is Egypt and God's response. I can't think of four more profound, powerful, beautiful words for people who are in pain than these words. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and he knows. I don't know what your Egypt is. I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what the brokenness in your life is. But what I know is that God hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows. And here's the beauty of this. Because God does these things, because he hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows intimately what's going on, those things lead God, the God of the Bible, to act powerfully on behalf of his people. 
And that's exactly what happens in the story. God does not turn a blind eye. He doesn't shut the conversation down. He doesn't just ignore his people. His remembering and his seeing and his experiencing their pain and their lack of shalom drives God to act on behalf of his people. He raises up a man named Moses, bizarre story, who also grew up as a Hebrew under the threat of death, but was actually rescued by being thrown into the Nile, but in a basket, spent some time in the wilderness, is brought back, and God says, you are gonna deliver my people. Go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And that's what Moses does. He walks to the halls of power. He says, God is commanding you to let his people go. Pharaoh responds with a no. And so God sends a plague. And think of that as like judgment on God's enemies. Anytime you put yourself in opposition to God, your life begins to unravel and fall apart. And Pharaoh and Egypt begin to unravel and fall apart underneath these plagues. One after the other, after the other. Finally, eventually, Pharaoh kind of falls apart under the weight of the judgment. And he he gives in. He says, fine, you can go. And so Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. Wait a minute, I don't want you to go. So he sends the Egyptian army after them and in hot pursuit, they're chasing down the people of God. They get to the Red Sea. And so the people of Israel are thinking, what has God done? He's brought us out here to die. How is this help? How is this peace? How is this deliverance? And then Moses, through the power of God and Moses' life, parts the Red Sea and the people of Israel cross over on dry land from death all the way over to life, which by the way, baptism later for the Christian becomes a semblance of that passing through the waters of judgment into uh, life through death. And and so what happens here is phenomenal. Uh, Egypt runs in after Israel to pursue them. And then God finally destroys Israel's enemies. The waters wash over. The judgment of God completely destroys the Egyptian army. And then God delivers his people safely. He then takes them to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God gives his people the law, where he forms them to be his unique people in the world. Here's what life looks like. Here's how you're to live. Don't live like the pagan nations. Live like a light into the world, salt and light into this dark world. And he shapes them as his people. And he promises to take them one day to the promised land where they can dwell fully in peace, freed from their enemies, freed from affliction, and freed from slavery. This is what God did for his people. But if you know your Old Testament and if you know the story, then you know that things do not end well for the people of Israel. It's not like they're like, great, we trust you, God, you got this. But actually what happens is over time, they become just like Egypt themselves. And instead of actually obeying the law, they're crushed under the weight of it. And instead of becoming the unique people of God in the world, They start to look like all the other pagan nations and reject God again and again and again. You see, here's the problem. God was able to get the people out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in their hearts. And what they needed was a better rescue because their ultimate slavery, their ultimate problem, the ultimate bondage wasn't Pharaoh and it wasn't the physical chains in Egypt. It was their ultimate slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And so this is what the Bible says is all about. It's about God not just taking his people out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of his people. It's God moving. It's God hearing and remembering and seeing and knowing and that knowing causing him to act. And ultimately, God acts on our behalf for the sake of deliverance 
through Jesus Christ and his birth. This is what Christmas is all about. And this is why, for extra credit, by the way, read the Gospel of Luke and think about the Exodus story because Luke, out of all the Gospel writers, although all of them do it, is intentionally pulling in this Exodus narrative because this Exodus narrative is our narrative as followers of Jesus. It's again and again and again referenced. Let me show you one of them, not in Luke, but in John chapter one. Talking about Jesus entering our world, here's what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but what happened with Jesus? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, God raised up Moses for his people, but he raised up our Messiah, Jesus, for you and for me. Like Moses, Jesus was sent by God to deliver his people from slavery. Like Moses, Jesus was born under the threat of death, a genocide of young Hebrew boys from a king, or only this time it wasn't Pharaoh, it was Herod. Moses escaped death because of a young Hebrew girl named Miriam, Jesus escapes death by ironically going to Egypt because of a young Hebrew girl named Mary. Same word, both in Hebrew and Greek. Moses was given spiritual power to accomplish God's mission and unleash plagues on Egypt, but the Messiah was given spiritual power through the Holy Spirit at his baptism, not to unleash plagues of judgment, but to unleash healing on the sick and the blind and the lame and the dead. Moses had a unique relationship with God because other people, it said, uh, God would speak to in dreams or in visions, but with Moses, he would talk face to face. But our Messiah, Jesus, had the most ultimate unique relationship with God as the Father's beloved Son. Moses instituted the Passover where this lamb, this spotless lamb was slain and the blood of the lamb was spread over the doorpost so that the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God would pass over his people uh, that this is what Moses instituted, and yet we read this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. His blood was shed so that the judgment of God would pass over us. Moses was rejected by his own people again and again, and yet he still delivers them. The Messiah, Jesus, was re- rejected by his people, ultimately rejected to death, handed over to die on a cross for their deliverance. Moses came down the mountain with the law and it crushed the people. They couldn't live underneath it. Jesus, the Messiah, comes down from heaven with grace and with truth, not more law. God used Moses to to drown Israel's enemies in the waters of God's judgment in the Red Sea. But ultimately, friends, our Messiah, Jesus, he not only entered the waters of God's judgment, but on the cross, those waters washed over him and his death has brought us out of our death into his life. Friends, we had no peace because of our sin, but we read this in Isaiah 53, five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christmas is God remembering his covenant. It's him seeing, it's him knowing, and it's him acting on our behalf through the person of Jesus. Christmas is God showing up to Satan, sin, and death and making this claim and this demand, let my people 
go. When you look at that baby in a manger, you are looking at God bringing peace to us, his enemies, who had waged war against him, and yet he died so that we could be reconciled back to him. This is why the angels sing this song in Luke chapter two, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or as my favorite Christmas song written by Charles Wesley puts it, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So let me close with this. Where do we go from here? Friends, remember, remember that our lives right now are getting played out somewhere between uh, our deliverance from Egypt and us making it to the promised land when heaven comes fully to this earth. You and I live in the wilderness where, yes, we've been led out of our slavery and out of our bondage, but there's still the haunting of Egypt in our hearts. But yet, here's the reality and here's the truth. God has made peace with us. Our greatest answer, our greatest longing has been settled in Jesus. He has made peace peace with us. And so, yes, we live in this weird, messy, painful, difficult time between the already and the not yet, the wilderness journey between uh, Egypt and the promised land, but God will finish what he started. And so because of that, what I want to invite you to do is embrace peace as a fact that can actually inform the way that you feel. Your feelings will fluctuate day to day, moment by moment, based on your circumstances around you. But the reality and truth of peace with God is an unchanging fact that cannot change. Allow the fact and truth of peace to inform how you feel in this moment. So I don't know what you're bringing in. I don't know what you're carrying. I don't know what Egypt feels like to you. But what I do know is that God in Christ has come to offer you peace. Allow that to shape the way that you engage this season and even your own feelings. All right, let me close with this. Have you ever heard of the poem Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? It became a song later that got kind of turned into other songs and done again and again and again. But the the original poem and the history behind the poem is really breathtaking. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had recently lost his wife in a tragic fire. That fire had actually burned his face as well. The Civil War was raging on at this time. And his son was fighting in the Civil War and he got news that his son had been badly uh, injured. His son was shot and was fighting for his life. So they sent his son back home to be with uh, Longfellow at their home and to recover there. And so it's Christmas morning and here he is. He's mourning the death of his wife. He's missing his wife. He's grieving his own physical pain. He's hearing the rumblings of the Civil War in the background He's thinking about how there's just chaos and dysfunction in this world. And then he's watching his son fight for his life. And any parent knows, like when, you're, when your child is hurting, you would give anything to take away the pain and, and, and to endure that on their behalf. And here he is just wondering, like, where is the peace of God? So he sits down to write this poem, Christmas Bells, as a way of lamenting and grieving and reminding himself of what is true. Listen to these words with that background in mind. I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries or the bell towers of all Christendom 
had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So he's remembering, he's hearing these Christmas bells. He's remembering this declaration that Jesus came to bring peace. Then the poem turns dark. Listen to this. Talking about the cannons of the Civil War. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then notice the last stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So friends, if you get nothing else today, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. God sees and he remembers, he hears and he knows.